Amen. Amen. Well, it is uh, great to be in the uh, final worship service of the weekend in this house. Let me say uh, thanks to Pastor Ryan and Amy. Um, Just a few short months ago, my wife and I came to this church Yeah, really broken, and um, this has been a place of hope and healing for us, and how blessed you are, or if you would allow me to say it, how blessed we are to be led by Pastor Amy and Pastor Ryan, who they they love the people of God, and they love the Word of God, and that's not everywhere, y'all. Believe me when I tell you, that is uh, not everywhere. And so we're so grateful for them and for their ministry. And um, so um, open your Bibles, if you would, to Luke 23. Luke 23. And if you don't have a Bible, um, you must be new. So um, welcome. And um, you're around a lot of loving people. Now, if you only have a Bible on your phone, technically you get a check mark, but it's a bit of a B, Okay. So if you have like a, let's hold up your real Bibles, real Bibles. Let's see all the real Bibles in the house. And I've heard people actually pull into the parking lot of a church when they're looking for a church and they wait to see how many people are bringing their Bibles in. So how would that be going here? Oh, it's in my pocket. Yeah, but that's not helping us right now. So in any event, I hope that you, the real thing is I hope you can get your eyes on a copy of God's word. If it's electronic or physically, whatever it is. Um, I don't have anything to say that isn't going to come from the Bible, and we're actually going into Luke 23 now. Um, All in favor of a positive, uplifting message? Yeah, I don't have one of those for you. Um, In fact, we're a week away from Easter, and as Pastor Ryan and I were talking about this slot, and he invited me to stand here, by the way, uh, his... Uh, Amy preached two weeks ago, and then they had that guy here, cool guy from out of town. We were here last week, and he was here, Pastor Nate Clark. So he was here. So now I'm here. Pastor Ryan's had three weeks of rest. His, when he pulls into the lot on Sunday morning, his car's going to break out in flames. <laughs> like, you know how fired up he's going to be next week for church? Do you have any idea when you pull your pastor back in the slingshot that far? I mean, it's going to be something special, really special, and we're excited about that, and I know that you are. And as he and I were talking about what would prepare our hearts for that, we were noting how in the culture, and you know, we're all living in this culture, one of the things that is increasingly common is people want the result, but they don't want the process. They want the dessert, but they don't want the main course. You know, like, it doesn't make sense that you would expect to uh, wear the green jacket, if you didn't play golf successfully for four grueling rounds, am I right? And in the same way, I never, it never makes sense to me that people want to wear the gown and throw their hat in the air, but they don't want to sit for the final exams. And it never makes sense to me that people want the good news from the doctor, they want the successful result, the health and strength, but they don't want to go through the surgery. So um, let me just (laughs) say in advance, um, this message is surgery. This is the hard part to get to the awesome part. Why next week? Why would we want to stand at the empty tomb without being reminded what that victory cost? 
So we're in Luke 23. And, and the thing about Luke 23 is you don't just rip open your Bible and start reading it, right? You know that? You got to kind of know what you have in your hands. And the Gospels are like big mountain peaks. But in Luke 23, there's no feeding of the 5,000. There's no um, raising the dead. There's no mind-numbing miracles of other kinds. There's no streets of Jerusalem, no Sea of Galilee. There's no incredible teaching to the disciples on the Mount of Olives. There's none of that is in Luke 23. Luke 23 is, well, before we jump into it, let me show you the bookends, and you'll have it. Just keep your finger there, or swipe left, or... <laughs> Luke 22, 14. We're going to look at the bookends here, Luke twenty two fourteen, And when the hour came... He, that's Jesus, reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I, say it, before I suffer. Before I suffer. Now keep that in mind and go over to chapter 24. Now Jesus risen from the dead. Verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ, he's talking about himself, that the Christ should, what? Suffer, suffer. How that must have alarmed the disciples to hear in another gospel, it says he told the disciples that they must go to Jerusalem where he would suffer many things. All of this was in God's plan. The cross is not a B plan. The cross, cross was always the A plan. The Bible says that Jesus Christ was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Now, before we even can get to Luke 23, let me just say that his suffering, his atoning sacrifice for our sin, his payment for our sin has already begun. He's with the disciples in the upper room. Peter says he's going to deny him. Then um, he mentions the traitor, Judas, who's going to betray him. On the list of life's bludgeonings, betrayal ranks number one. It hits the hardest, it hurts the most, it lingers the longest. And Jesus is already now suffering. He leaves the upper room, he goes down through the Kidron Valley and up into the Garden of Gethsemane. I've been there and preached there. And some of the trees are 2,000 years old to think that they witnessed the Savior there, bowing with great drops of blood from the excruciating strain what was causing this. The metaphor is a cup. He looked in the cup and began to pray, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. Then he prayed as the disciples slept. If it's not possible to take this cup away from me, your will be done. Incredibly, after this extended time of prayer, uh, the soldiers come, the arrest is imminent. The, that's not what a kiss is for. 
Peter pulls out his sword and swings to cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. He was in the flesh. Jesus was in the spirit. In fact, incredibly, having prayed earlier, take this cup away from me, he now, John 19, 11, turns to the disciples and says, the cup which my father has given to me, shall I not drink it? What was in the cup? What was in the cup? Not just human suffering, for many have suffered great torture physically. It was far, far more than that. He saw himself the perfect, spotless, eternally perfect and pure son of God. Saw himself being made sin or a sin offering. He was made sin for us who knew no sin. 1 Corinthians 5.21, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And he looked in the cup and he saw separation from his father, this perfect triune, one God, eternally existing in three persons. How can that separation even exist? Our, he would have had to make our minds as big as Jupiter to understand it. Some things we just... I love the line, let me no more my comfort draw from my frail grasp of thee. In this alone rejoice with awe your mighty grasp of me. And in some things we must just worship. I don't, I don't know, but whatever was in there, it was the totality of what the incarnation came to accomplish. And so the title of this message, Why Did Jesus Have to Suffer?, Why did Jesus have to suffer? I'm almost to Luke 23. Look at chapter 22, verse 63. Now the men, and start with this thought, Jesus suffered at his trial. Jesus suffered at his trial. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. Think of it. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things, blaspheming him. The filthiest possible words in the cruelest combination that clenched teeth could spew upon the Savior one after another after another. Chapter 23, verse 1 begins this mockery of a trial. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people. Teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, even to this place. Of course, all of this is made up. Jesus wasn't misleading anyone. He wasn't forbidding tribute to Caesar. We know that. He did claim to be a king, but he wasn't wrong. So Pilate, being the coward that men often are, sends him to Herod. That's the next paragraph. Herod sends him back. Do you know that our whole Western world of 
jurisprudence. Our whole legal system is based upon the book of Deuteronomy. And, and here, every principle is violated, that you have a right to face your accusers, that the witnesses have to agree that um, you're innocent until proven guilty. All of these things abandoned quickly under the demands of the mob, verse 18. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. A man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. Yeah, I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. Now you know how deeply you feel when you find out that one person has privately said one false thing about you. Right? But we're not perfect. And here, the injustice staggers the mind. Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Barabbas is the first in a very, very long line known as humanity. He deserved to be on the middle cross. He deserved to die for his crimes. He was allowed to go free. Jesus died in his place. Numero uno. And all the way down the line through all of human history till we get to this century and this city and all of us. Every person must decide for themselves, will I believe in Jesus' suffering for, as payment for my sin so that he can stand in for me too? That's the gospel. And when the Bible says that Jesus suffered, loved ones, hear me, he did suffer. The word that comes to mind, had I asked you as you were coming in tonight to take this post-it note, and before the service begins, write on it a single word, the strongest word in the English language that you can think of for human suffering. Many of you, most of you, with some thought, would have made your way to the word excruciating, excruciating. But did you know that that English word comes from the Latin excruciate? Ex means out of and cruciate, the cross. The very word that we use in our language to describe the greatest suffering comes to us out of people centuries ago reflecting upon, among others, this passage, Luke 23, and the reality of Jesus' suffering. Jesus suffered at his trial. Jesus suffered at his scourging under the inspiration of the Spirit. Luke does not mention the scourging, but I 
cannot go past it. It happened right there before the end of verse 25. And Matthew 27, 26 says this. Then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus. There it is. Delivered him to be crucified. Having scourged Jesus. Note this. Jesus suffered at his scourging or flogging, a legal preliminary to every Roman execution. Years ago, there was an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association, known as JAMA, J-A-M-A, a scholarly journal. It was entitled, On the Physical Death of Jesus. Here's what it says about scourging. Flogging was a legal preliminary to every Roman execution. And only women, Roman senators, and soldiers, except in the case of desertion, were exempt. The usual instrument, a whip or flagrum or flagellum, with several single or braided leather thongs of various lengths in which small iron balls and portions of sheep bone were knotted. For scourging, the man was stripped of his clothing and his hands were tied to an upright post. The back and buttocks and legs were scourged or flogged either by two soldiers alternately or one soldier alternating sides so that the coverage was thorough. The severity of the scourging depended upon the disposition of the soldiers. And there's nothing we've seen this far that would indicate an ounce of mercy in them. It was intended to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse or death. On its medical aspects, the journal continues, as the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victims back with full force, the iron balls would cause deep contusions and the leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin. Then as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. The extent of blood loss may well have determined how long the victim would survive on the cross. At the praetorium, Jesus was severely whipped or scourged. The severity of the scourging is not discussed in any of the four Gospels. It is not known whether the legal limit of lashes, which was 39 was held to, but again, this far in the Gospels, we have no reason to believe that the soldiers were the least bit interested in keeping the law. Make no mistake about it, loved ones. The atonement is happening here. Payment for sin is underway. 
wrath is being poured out by Almighty God and human instruments consider themselves significant. But even here, Almighty God is entirely in control. As the Father visits upon the Son his wrath for all sin for all time. Jesus suffered at his trial. Jesus suffered at his scourging. To some, this message is very troubling. Maybe to you. How can you call him a savior who suffered and died? What did he save? Who did he save? He lost. Muslims around the world reject the cross of Christ as a stumbling block and the atonement for sin through suffering as foolishness. In 1894, Gandhi wrote in his autobiography, page 112, quote, I could accept Jesus as a martyr, his death on the cross as a great example, but that there was, Gandhi wrote, but that there was anything else to his suffering, mysterious or miraculous, this my heart cannot accept. And off he went into eternity. In 1900, German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche dismissed the concept of Christ's suffering by ridiculing what he called God on a cross, the idea as preposterous. Modern Oxford scholar from our lifetime, Alfred Ayer, evaluated world religion, calling Christianity, quote, the worst of all, because it rests on the notion of substitutionary atonement and a suffering savior which is intellectually contemptible and morally outrageous. Is that what you believe? Because every person must come themselves to a decision. What do I believe about Jesus Christ on the cross? He surely did suffer at his trial, at his scourging. Note this, Jesus suffered on the road to the cross. On the road to the cross. Look at Luke 23, verse 26. Verse 25, I read already. Let me go over it again. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And after the scourging, he was in the hands of the mob. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross. The cross would have weighed about 200 pounds. And if we doubt for a moment the severity of Jesus' scourging, how strong was Jesus Christ? And yet he was now by this point already beaten down so much we're not told, but it seems the other two carried their crosses, but Jesus, under the weight of what he had already endured, apparently buckled. We, we know that the streets were lined with people hurling insults 
And here's this Simon Cyrene. Verse 27 says, There followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. So the women who loved him, weeping for him, the crowd jeering and laughing, obviously with the Roman soldiers there, some would have felt bold enough under their protection, can you imagine, to step out of the crowd and and punch him or spit upon him or... But I really love this Simon of Cyrene guy. When I think about Bible characters, I gotta tell you, I feel kind of intimidated. I've been studying the Bible for a long time. When I think of David and when I think of Joshua and when I think of Gideon and Moses and Elijah and Ruth and Esther and, I mean, anybody with me on this kind of little intimidated by the, yeah, we're all coming over to your house after church today. Is that okay? Anybody, I wish I'd made a little more, right? You know what I'm saying? Little, I feel a little shrunk by the Bible characters, but I, I've always thought this to myself. If I, I never could be one of those people, but I think I could be this guy. I mean, I would love the thought of being that. How many of you would want to be, man, if I could relieve Christ's suffering, right? If I could, would you try to carry the cross for a little while, would you? How many, I, I, th- I think I would want that job. I'd like, give it to me. I, I'll do something. He's doing something so vast for all of humanity. It's interesting, this, this guy's name, Simon of Cyrene, um, Actually, in the Gospel of Mark, it says that he was the father of Alex and Alexander and Rufus. And then Rufus is mentioned as a Christian in Rome. There can't have been a lot of Rufuses, right? Any Rufuses here today? Any Rufuses here today? I've dedicated a lot of babies at the front of the church. I've never held a little Rufus in my hands. And so there can't have been a lot of these guys. And I'm just thinking to myself, maybe, maybe this guy came to know the one for whom he carried the cross. I love that thought. And then his sons knew him, and then they made their way to Rome and were in the church there. We don't know for sure, but note this. Beginning in verse 28, Jesus gives his final sermon. It's just um, 77 words in English. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. I think we'd all agree that one of the greatest honors a human being can have is the honor that God has given to women, bearing children. Guys, this is going to be a great spot for an amen. One of the... (laughs) I just can't bear the thought of you sitting there going... And your wife's like, is he even listening? So I just, I'm just helping you a bit because I love you. We'll see you Wednesday night at the bold men thing. Now, God has given to women the great honor, I mean this, of bearing children and raising them in the home. And it is a great honor. All the more stark then that Jesus says this. Behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and the hills cover us. And then this little proverb almost, 
For if they do these things when the wood is green, in the best of times, in the healthiest of times, what will happen when the wood is dry, desert, dead times? Or to say it this way, if this is the treatment you give an innocent man, what do you think they will do to those deserving this? You will wish your children had never been born. Wow. And of course, that was prophetic of the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened 37 years after Jesus spoke those words. And the temple has never been rebuilt. And the sacrificial system has never been reinstituted since that day. Jesus suffered at his trial. Jesus suffered at his scourging. Jesus suffered on the road to the cross. Here it is. The most of it now. Jesus suffered on the cross. On the cross. Verse 32. Luke 23, 32. Two other criminals who were, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called, see it there? The skull. The skull. Mosaic law required that executions be performed outside the city. The Greek here, the place of the skull, the Greek is cranium, cranion from which we get cranium. The Hebrew, Golgotha. The Latin is Calvary. We use that word in one of our worship songs today. All of them, Calvary, Golgotha, cranion, they all mean the same thing, skull. So those of you who are complaining about the skulls. What's with these skulls everywhere? What's with all this skull stuff everywhere? Just think of it. It's where Jesus was crucified. Gives it kind of a different picture, doesn't it? So here's a picture of Golgotha. That's from about 100 years ago. Can you see it there? Can you see the, the eyes and the nose and the mouth? This wasn't called the place of the skull because there was bones and skulls around and it wasn't called it because Jesus died here. Scholars believe that Jesus did die here. But it was already called the place of the skull because of its appearance. And here's a modern picture of it. You can see how the rock has deteriorated somewhat. And there below is, that's a Muslim bus station. And the Muslims, if I... Hope you get to go to Israel sometime. We've been blessed to be there many times. And um, just to the left here is what Christians believe is the garden tomb where Jesus was placed. And we know it's very close to where he was crucified. But the Golgotha was not a backdrop, understand. It was not a backdrop for the crucifixion. The crosses were not in front of it. They were on top of it because the executioner sought the greatest amount of shame. And they wanted the most people to see from the furthest away. And so um, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. The crosses were on top of this. And I had been there three or four or five times when I said to some of my friends, there's a whole grassy area up there. There's actually a Muslim cemetery now on top too. 
Just think of it. And there's a mosque on the, on the Temple Mount. There's a mosque. I mean, it's, it's all right. Someday Jesus is going to set all this straight in a, con- in a country minute, y'all. Now, and, and it's awesome to think of the suffering Savior coming as king, isn't it? The Bible says that he will come on a white horse with a sword going out of his mouth. The Bible says that he'll have on a robe upon his robe and on his thigh a name is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords and he will tread the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. How much of that, how much of that is in the Savior's mind now? So when I was there, I just had to get up on this hill. I had to get up on the hill. Now, so it's, it's Muslim controlled. So we went into the Muslim quarter. That's very dangerous. And there may or may not have been some cash exchanged. <laughs> and because the door to the cemetery was locked, but I may or may not have remembered to tell them that we had a video crew, but in a matter of a couple of hours, we were in there and right through the Muslim cemetery and we climbed over what was then a fence and... Here's a little clip of the video that I recorded. Well, I'm in the place incredibly, awesomely, where Jesus suffered more than any other place by far. This is Golgotha. It's incredible that we've been able to get up on top of this place. That's a miracle. I'll save the story for another time. Like now. I can't, I can't tell you why exactly, but do we have the picture of the wall? So there's actually now, uh, the next time we went back, there wasn't a fence anymore. There was a wall. And on the wall are all these signs that say in Arabic, Muslim cemetery. There is only one God. His name is Allah and his prophet is Muhammad. And, and uh, but I got the video. And... Um, Honestly, when I was preparing this part, I started to weep. And I just, wanted a rest before I went into this. It's said so simply here, but there's so much in it. Verse 33, when they came to the place that is called the skull, four words, there, they crucified him. Frederick Farrar in his book, The Life of Christ, writes, a death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of the horrible and the ghastly. Dizziness, cramp, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, shame, publicity of shame, long continuance of torment, horror of anticipation, mortification of intended wounds, all intensified just up to the point at which they can be endured at all, but all stopping just short of the point that would give the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. 
The unnatural position made every movement painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with intense anguish. The wounds inflamed by exposure. The arteries, especially at the head and stomach, became swollen and oppressed with surcharged blood. And while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pain of a burning and raging thirst. Later we'll read how the soldiers sensed his thirst, took a sponge with sour wine and jammed it in his face. One thing is clear, the first century executions were not like the modern ones, for they did not seek a quick, painless death, nor the preservation of any measure of dignity. On the contrary, they sought an agonizing torture which completely humiliated. And it is important that we understand this, for it helps us realizing the extent of the excruciating suffering of Jesus Christ. Truman Davis in his book called The Crucifixion of Jesus has this heading, How Does Death Happen? Hanging there on the cross as the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed. Air can be drawn into the lungs but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself up in order to get a breath. But the pain of exerting himself against the nails seeks relief and he drops again each breath, a near life-ending exertion. As he drags himself up and down and his ribboned back against the rough timber. A deep crushing pain in the chest sets in. As the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It's almost over now. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy thick sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air and with one of those breaths Jesus said verse 34 Father forgive them for they know not what they do were truer words ever spoken I mean how clueless are these people they're casting lots to divide his garments a gambling game to pass the time. Nothing important is happening. Now I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, oh, you're trying to get us to feel sorry for Jesus. Wrong. That could not be a more inaccurate conclusion. Jesus doesn't need our pity. Believe me on this. He does not. He is in full control of his senses. He is sensing everything even as the sky grows dark and the Father in perfect holiness has to look away. Jesus understands so fully what is happening. Earlier he had said, no one takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down. And as we will see next Lord's Day, someone say amen. I have the power to raise it up again. He is in full control so much so that he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Feeling that worst part of his suffering, his 
separation, what had only been eternally known through all of history and time, what the prophets had foretold, the suffering of the Savior, the separation from the Father, until he said, it is finished. And some think, sadly, and to their own detriment, that they can be passive and indifferent about the only provision that God has made for the forgiveness of sins. Perfect holiness demanded that sin be paid for and will, as the scripture says, by no means clear the guilty. Perfect holiness demanded that sin be paid for and then perfect love found a way. If you were on that cross, you would be paying for your own sin, as would I. It took a perfect person, but there are none. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So God came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And, amen. And upon him, upon him, almighty judgment fell that would have sunk the world to hell in fact if God loves the world enough to give his son to suffer and pay for their sin how much will he hate the humanity in hell who reject him people don't go to hell to pay for their own sin If you say that, stop saying that. No one could atone for their sin. People don't go to hell to pay for their sin. They go to hell for rejecting God's provision for their salvation in Christ. Here individually in some parts of the world, in some centuries, generationally. Now, Were you there? Were you at the cross? Were your sins in the cup that Jesus drank to the bottom? It always grieves me and kind of scares me when I hear people say, if there's really a God of love, why doesn't he? I mean, if God really cared, surely he would. And you have your little something from the news. Or maybe worth something for your experience. I'm so sorry. But God has done something. All of God's wrath for all sin for all time was poured out upon his son so that he can justly and freely forgive us. You know that the wages for sin is death, right? How, how, how do you handle it if you don't get your paycheck? Say not well. Right? Come on. Somebody turn to their neighbor and say, not well. But the Bible says that the wages or the paycheck for sin is death. Ezekiel said, the soul that sins, it will die. The writer of Hebrews said, it is appointed unto man once to die after this judgment. Every single person that has ever lived is on a collision course, personal private, I believe, appointment with the God of the universe. And when you get there, you better have a better plan than I tried hard. 
What will God say to those who believe that their own goodness will get them through? The writer of Hebrews says, of how much greater punishment? It says, let me give a bit more. It says in Hebrews 10, anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Of how much greater punishment will he be considered worthy who tramples underfoot the blood of the covenant and puts the Son of God to open shame? Look, y'all, it's not shocking that there's only one way. It's shocking that there's any way at all. Any way. Who do we think we are? And so then, just this. You were at the cross. You were at the cross. Let's see if we can find you there. I just wrote these questions down from the text. And I made them personal so we can both say them as though speaking to ourselves. Am I with the ones ridiculing Jesus? And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. All of this he heard as he suffered. There was also an inscription over him, the king of the Jews. Are you one of the ones ridiculing Jesus? Do you throw his name around as though it's meaningless? Do you live your life as though his atoning death is unimportant? Do you view his suffering in your place for your sin? As just so much religious emotion, practically speaking, not urgent, not a matter upon which you must decide, then you're with the ones ridiculing Jesus. Or this, from verse 39, am I with the ones rejecting Jesus? One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. This is so much of Western world Christianity. Jesus for me. Jesus for me. But really, it's a rejection. You can't make Jesus into someone sent to upgrade your life experience and then believe that that's the saving Christ. The apostles preached, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus Christ is the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He is God's son. He is a sinner's savior. And he stands in the solitude of himself. He is unparalleled. He is unprecedented. He is the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. And what have you done, truly done, with Jesus Christ and his suffering for you? Worst of all, am I with the ones patronizing Jesus? Verse 48 says, and all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle. Why did they get together? We heard there was going to be a show. When they saw what had taken place, they returned to their homes, beating their breast. 
beating the breast of the Jews like sackcloth, like ashes, like tearing their garments, had lost its meaning. The prophet said, rend your hearts, not your garments. And this beating upon their breast had become a formula. The bread, the cup, this is what we do. Easter, time to shout. They were patronizing Jesus. That was awful. That was hard to look at. Jesus doesn't need our patronizing. He commands all men everywhere to come to the knowledge of him. And so it's time to respond. I hope you're with this final group or you can be now as I close with the ones accepting Jesus. One of the criminals railed at him. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. This man has done nothing wrong. And there's the first part of accepting Jesus right there. I like to say that it's simple but not easy. It's simply understood. Paul said, I pray that your minds would not be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. It's so simple, but it's not easy. It's everything. We give our lives to him in exchange for our salvation. But it's as simple as ABC. Start with this. A, accept the fact that you're a sinner. Every person in the sound of my voice this moment is under the just condemnation of Almighty God. The sentence of death is already upon us. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah said a thousand years before Jesus, now confirmed by archaeology. The chastisement for our peace is upon him. By his stripes, we are healed. And it begins with that A, accepting the fact that you're a sinner. Like that guy on the cross. We're here for what we did. We deserve this. We've all broken God's law. And the things that we said and the things we've done and the things that no one else knows about and the things that we've thought in our hearts. And the Bible says that if you know to do good and you don't do it, it's sin. So even in the good left undone. We know to forgive and we don't do it. We know to love and to serve and we live selfish lives and it's all sin. And Jesus is there suffering and paying for all of it so that we can be reconciled to God. You have to accept that. And then you have to believe that Jesus died for your sin. This man said it so simply. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, I'll see you there. And so now comes a decision for us. I'll give you the C in just a moment. But the A and B happens in a prayer. And if you would bow with me right now, I want to lead you in a prayer. And this is a prayer to settle once and for all, forever, that you have received Jesus Christ, that you've made that decision personally. Now, if you think you have, I want you to pray with me so that you can be sure that you have. 
If you're sure that you haven't, I want you to pray with me. If you're not sure that you have, if you have some vague, foggy notion, well, one time when I was a kid, I was like, look, if you don't have a conversion story, you don't have a conversion, okay? This isn't something that happened to you while you were on vacation or sleeping or something. It's a real thing. And April 10th, 2022, final service, some guy, but God spoke to me. Accept the fact that you're a sinner and then this, believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died to pay for your sins. Now, the Bible says that you can't even do that on your own, that the ability to believe is given by God. So just look into your heart. Do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sins? Faith is a gift. And God will give it to anyone who asks for it. But look in your heart now. Do you believe? Because if you do, you need to act on that and pray this prayer with me from your heart right now. Will you pray this prayer with me? If you're not sure or you're sure not, but you want to settle it now, I'm inviting you to pray these words with me. Pray, God, I do accept that I am a sinner. I know that I have broken your law in many ways. And today I'm settling with finality my action in this brief window called life. I accept my sin and my need for a savior and I believe that Jesus Christ suffered to pay the penalty for my sin. When did I, I don't know when I started believing this, but I believe it. I truly do believe it. Just say that to him. Just say, I believe. I believe. A hundred years from today, this is the only thing that will matter. And just say from your heart, God, I believe that Jesus died to pay for my sin. Now, I'm going to close. Look up here. The last part is the C, ABC. Accept, believe, confess. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. And I'm not going to have you walk an aisle or sign a card or stand up. None of those things are wrong. But doing something physical to remind you that this happened here. Some, it's not just in here, but it's out here somewhere. Here's what I want you to do. If you were praying with me, you'll never have a friendlier crowd. If you were praying with me while I was praying, in just a moment, I want you to raise your hand. If you were praying with me, were you? Ready? Do it now. Do it now. Great. Listen, listen. Now hold your hand up high. This is not a time to sort of phone it in, right? You want God to see you? Get your hand up. Now hang on, hang on. We're not going to clap, and here's why we're not going to clap. We will in a moment, but not yet, because some of us forget what this was like. Everyone with your hand up, hold it up. Now, is there anyone else? You're sitting there thinking, I did pray, but I don't want to raise my hand because I don't want to see me. We were there. We know and remember. Now, love is patient. And just for a moment, eternities are changing. Will you join these with their hands raised? Anyone else? Anyone else? God loves you and sent his son as the payment for your sin 
glory hallelujah, raise your hand. Okay, now everyone else who's made this decision, look around. Now let's clap and rejoice together. Amen, amen, amen. And we're going to, ushers are coming. They'll give a Bible to everyone who had their hand raised. And Pastor Jesse's coming. We're welcoming new members of God's family to the Lord's table here at Generation Church today. Pastor Jesse, lead us in our time of remembering Jesus.